Hey, RareCast listeners. Rare in the Square brings together rare disease innovators each year to forge partnerships and advance innovation. The event takes place in conjunction with the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference and the Biotech Showcase. The annual financial conference is held in San Francisco that kick off the new year in biotech. While both of those events have gone virtual in 2021 because of the pandemic, Global Genes is partnering with the Biotech Showcase to create Rare Beyond the Square this year to highlight rare disease progress and innovation, share information, and facilitate partnering and networking among companies, investors, and rare disease communities. Tune into Rare Beyond the Square, January 11th through the 14th, 2021. You can register at globalgenes.org under the Events tab. Thanks. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Tesla Therapeutics is seeking to move beyond gene editing and gene therapy to what it calls gene writing. The company said its technology can be used to change base pairs, make small insertions or deletions, and integrate entire genes into the genome. We spoke to Jeffrey von Maltzen, co-founder and CEO of Tessera, about the company's gene writing technology, how it works, and the potential for it to accelerate the pace of genetic medicine. Jeff, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about Tessera Therapeutics, its efforts to develop therapies that move beyond gene therapy and gene editing to what it calls gene writing as a way to address disease. Perhaps we can begin with the notion of genetic medicine. What's meant by that term today, and where do you think we are in regards to its evolution? Oh, awesome question. So... Genetic medicine would be medicine that corrects disease or treats disease through our genes themselves. And in terms of where we are, you know, it's probably one of these funny paradoxes, like many scenarios where we're at the beginning and, and yet uh, we've come an enormous way. Um, if you zoom all the way out, you could think of the last hundred years of medicine as having been climbing their way towards DNA in that medicine began and largely today is small molecules that drug proteins. The biotech industry was created through the birth of proteins themselves becoming drugs. And, and now we're in the midst of society saving uh, RNA based COVID vaccines and have seen the first cures take place at the level of DNA. So that is likely just the beginning of the category of genetic medicine in that for the same reason that DNA is the code of life as we know it and drives the biology of every single cell in our body, it's probably right to imagine that if you're trying to cure a disease or provide lifelong protection against the disease, 
the rightful home for many of those therapeutics is going to be at the level of DNA. As we look at the horizon ahead, it, it is, I think, replete with uh, some amazing, possibly medicine-changing therapies. It's easy to get excited by the potential of these technologies, but what are the limitations of gene therapy and gene editing as they exist today? What are they not able to do with these approaches? Sure. I'll start with gene editing in that it's, it's been in the news for the past five, 10 years on, on a daily basis. I mean, the sensation that has been CRISPR has dramatically changed the way that we do science and is creating in real time, extraordinary medicines. And most of what the field describes as gene, gene editing is uh, connected to the, the strengths as well as the weaknesses of machinery like CRISPR. These are called nucleases. And what they do in nature is they programmably cleave DNA. So CRISPR, in fact, if you were to find it in its rightful home, it's a, an extraordinary security system for microbes. When invasive DNA wanders into the cytoplasm, CRISPR is able to programmably cut up that DNA to protect the cell from that invader. So it, its role in evolution was to perfect the task of, of cleaving or cutting DNA. And that's where the majority of its therapeutic applications likely reside in that when you cut the human genome, cells don't like that. <laughs> they swarm in to try to fix it. Often they do so in a process that's prone to error. And the result is the gene in which you uh, specify to cut no longer works. So if you're trying to turn off a hyperactive gene that's causing disease, the nuclease category or CRISPR specifically are a wonderful tool to utilize. However, since you highlight you know, where the limitations still are, as all of us can probably relate to with our everyday use of technology, it's a lot easier for something to stop working than it is for it to uh, go renegade and become hyperactive. Uh, we're all used to the technologies we rely upon breaking down around us over time. And, and the same is true at the level of DNA, the, the machines that our life depends on can break down more easily. And, and therefore to fix them, you have to be able to go in and provide a curative therapeutic correction to the gene that broke. Sometimes that's one nucleotide or base pair. Sometimes it's a few. And sometimes you have to write a perfect version of the entirety of that gene in order to treat a patient population. And, and CRISPR's uh, not very efficient in doing those, which of course, going back to nature is no fault of its upbringing. You know, it, it's, its strengths are to programmably cleave DNA. If we jump to gene therapy, the primary vectors that are used for gene therapy today are what are called adeno-associated viruses, AAVs is easier to say, and what those do is they deliver a little loop of DNA into our cells. And what that enables is scientists in a lab to be able to 
perfect a therapeutic message or a gene that has broken down in a patient's cells. And then the gene therapy vector's job is to deliver it into those cells. So that can be curative when those cell types are non-dividing. And we've begun to see extraordinary examples of the impact that can have for patients with many more to come. However, a limitation of AAVs stems from a simple fact that when cells in your body divide throughout your life or divide when you're a young child, that active division requires them to replicate their own genome. They don't replicate those little loops of DNA. And so with every seceding cell division, those loops get lost or diluted out. And that prevents our current realm of AAVs from being able to permanently correct genetic defects in cells that are dividing in our bodies. Before we get into what Tessera is actually doing, I thought it might be useful to provide a little context to listeners. I thought we could start with Barbara McClintock and her discovery of mobile genetic elements. Who was McClintock and what was the significance of this discovery? Never heard of her. (laughs) (laughs) So Barbara McClintock was a titan of 20th century biology. Uh, She was awarded the Nobel Prize in the 80s probably could have won multiple Nobel Prizes. I mean, truly, truly a sensation. She discovered the first of what is now known to be the most abundant category of DNA in all of nature. They're they're called mobile genetic elements. And what these sequences of DNA do is they're able to produce machinery that grabs onto a copy of their code or their DNA, either in the form of DNA or in the form of RNA, and then go to another location in that genome or another and and move in, i.e. to insert or write their code into that new location. So I'll I'll try to simplify it. There's a wonderful book called The Selfish Gene that was written by Richard Dawkins. He described that we should think of our genome as of course a life form and natural selections acting on it. It's also like a village that thousands of smaller life forms called genes live in. And they're vying for their survival too. And when you, when you think of life that way, the ability of a piece of DNA to make a copy of itself and move into a new location, it is sort of like the minimum circle of life. So accordingly, it appears that biology has been doing this for a billion plus years, making sequences of DNA that are able to selfishly make a copy of themselves and find a new home and move into it. And the biochemical steps that they utilize to do that has exceptional overlap with some of the things that are hardest for us to do therapeutically today on the human genome, which is to go to a specific site in the genome and make a small or a large insertion of a new sequence of DNA, i.e. to write DNA into a specific location. So amazingly, back to Barbara, she discovered the first of these before we knew what DNA looked like. (laughs) The three-dimensional structure of DNA didn't exist. And she discovered, if you will, this life form called a mobile genetic element. 
Well, what's come to be understood about mobile genetic elements? How plentiful are they? And, and what function do they serve? What, what are they capable of doing? Sure, I'll, I'll start with how abundant they are. So, I, I mean, these are literally everywhere. They, they comprise half our genome, it, depending on how you classify genes, they're the most abundant sequences in the world. And so if you take abundance of a sequence of DNA in nature as a proxy for how much ingenuity or optimization mother nature's poured into it, you could make a case that she's spent more time optimizing this machinery than any gene in all of nature. And in biotechnology, we're, we're always building our technologies on the shoulders of mother nature. So what became extraordinary to us at the origin of Tessera was that these might be the tallest shoulders you could ever stand on to build a biotechnology and their properties in nature, which of course is dedicated to their ability to selfishly bring their sequence to a new location overlaps fundamentally with the steps that are hardest to do or of greatest importance in genetic medicine going to a specific location and writing in a, a new sequence. Tessera is a, a company that was created by flagship pioneering. What was the need Tessera was created to address and, and what was the vision for the company? Well, as I mentioned, while we've made extraordinary progress in fields of gene editing and gene therapy, a relatively simple, in fact, sometimes a frustratingly simple set of tools to be able to write DNA into the genome would have extraordinary future impact in medicine and are widely recognized to be things that we, we can't do yet today or we can't do efficiently today. So those, those steps are to be able to change any base to any other base, make a multi-base change, make a scarless insertion, make a scarless deletion, or to write a whole gene into a specific location in the genome. Although those might seem simple, and, and in fact, in concept, in, and in many ways they are, they connect to virtually all genetic disease as we know it, exempting when a chunk of a chromosome jumps from one place to another. And they would open up the potential to be able to impart base pair changes that could protect us from disease. That, for example, increasingly we're discovering sequences that protect people from cardiovascular disease, protect people from neurological disease. And at the level of DNA, if we had tools that could make those aforementioned changes, you know, we, we may be able to build medicines from those. So our, our inspiration was the combination of both that opportunity uh, and a belief that the category of genetic medicines over the next couple of decades is going to become increasingly important. And then the, the fruits of mother nature's ingenuity in, in this machinery uh, called mobile genetic elements. How does gene writing differ from gene editing? So largely gene editing is uh, mediating a cut in a specific place to turn off a gene or making a single base pair 
at a given location. Gene writing includes making single base pair changes, but doing it on a letter by letter basis, as opposed to chemically changing the structure of those, of those nucleotides. And it includes this you know, more sweeping terrain of multiple changes, scarless insertion, scarless deletions, and the ability to write a whole gene into a specific location. You're engineering and synthesizing mobile genetic elements for therapeutic purposes. What does it take to create one of these, target it appropriately, and deliver it to where it needs to go? <laughs> Great question. You've wrapped up uh, tens of thousands of hours <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and much more effort still to come into a, a deceptively simple question. So... I'll zoom out to where we were a couple of years ago, which is we started by recognizing that since CRISPR's role in nature didn't wonderfully overlap with what we thought the, the biggest unmet opportunities or, or needs were, rather than say, how could we dedicate our creativity to engineer CRISPR to do that? We simply took a step back and said, all right, let's just go looking in nature and see if mother nature might've spent hundreds of millions of years refining machinery to do just these steps of, 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 uh, of writing DNA. We obviously came across mobile genetic elements and, and the, we realized that we hadn't give, given mother nature nearly enough credit. So she had invented them galore. And the question really became, where do we start? So, you know, specifically, which of these still work and didn't break down millions of years ago? Of the ones that work, which could work on the human genome? Of those, <clears throat> which could we program, or as you say, engineer, so that instead of inserting their own code, which would be an undesirable thing, possibly akin to putting a life form into the genome, how, which can we actually program so that they are inserting only a therapeutic sequence into the genome? And then even a step better, which might we be able to program so that they could insert a wide range of therapeutic sequences potentially to any or a wide range of locations across the genome. And that's been the defining focus of the work we've been doing over the past couple of years. What are the cost implications of the technology? How, how is it expected to compare to other forms of genetic medicine? So first of all, we've made great progress and, um, some of that progress directly addresses cost and, and, and most of it directly addresses the ability to make the kind of changes that I was describing. So we are still early and, and I, I know that a, a meaningful fraction of the audience is, um, has direct experience with, with patients uh, with genetic diseases. And, and the progress we've made is currently limited to uh, animal models and cells, uh, human cells specifically, we're a couple of years away from being able to move into the clinic. And so, you know, we are uh, early, all things considered in our development, but it, we've gained conviction that these kinds of things are going to be possible in, uh, on the long arc of, of this next, uh, next phase of genetic medicine. And, and a couple of the things that we've done 
have the potential to make these kinds of therapies much more widely utilized than, uh, than, than our current repertoire. Among the things we've done is to utilize a, an amazing subset of mobile genetic elements, which are called retrotransposons. And, you know, retro things are cool. These are really cool. <laughs> Although they were named retro because they're able to grab onto a piece of RNA, go to the genome, and then one base pair at a time, write that RNA into DNA via a reverse transcriptase and moving up from RNA to DNA, resulting in a DNA sequence being inserted to the genome. Within that realm, we've been able to create what we call RNA gene writers, whereby we can introduce just two RNAs into cells, one RNA coding for the gene writer protein, the other RNA acting as a template. The protein finds that template, then finds the genome, and then one letter at a time, it's able to write that RNA template into the form of a DNA gene. So that feat, as far as we know, is, is a first of its kind. Uh, we, we don't know of an example where in the history of molecular biology, someone has previously added only two RNAs into a cell and resulted in a whole DNA gene entering the genome. But it has potentially meaningful implications for the, the, the cost of, of medicines of this kind in that as we're seeing in real time in the COVID vaccine race, the mRNA uh, vaccines have been at the very front of that. And while 10 years ago, that was an unprecedented, crazy technology, today it appears that we're on the verge of hundreds of millions of people receiving vaccines for less than the price of uh, a basketball game. <laughs> I mean, it, it's incredible how quickly that technology has gone from being impossible to something that is accessible to large portions of the world and genetic medicines hopefully have the potential to do the same. The, pl the plan is to produce therapeutics. How are you going about prioritizing indications? What, what makes an enticing target for Tessera? Great question. Well, strategically, the way we think about the company's plan is that we shouldn't bet the future of what we can achieve on any programs which harbor too much risk in the short term, because we're gonna be measured at every step by the ability to be able to create successful medicines. And therefore the indications that are most favorable at the beginning of our development are ones where the genetics of the disease are very rigorously understood and where we have the ability to be able to deliver our machinery into the cells of interest at high efficiency. Uh, fortunately, there's a lot of opportunity that fulfills those two criteria. And, and what that allows is us to try to isolate as much risk as we can to, to whether our technology is as successful as we expect it to be. And with success comes the opportunity to be able to further expand the, the number of indications that, that, that we pursue. Before Tessera, you were a co-founder and chief innovation officer of Indigo Ag. Tessera is focused on human health, but 
what's the potential for this technology in agricultural and industrial applications? And is there a plan to exploit that? Boy, great question. The humans aren't unique in having our biology be driven by DNA. Um, you know, life as we know it, uh, as we look around is defined by DNA coding for the, uh, you know, the living world around us. And, and agriculture is a, an obvious realm where the ability to be able to make precise modifications has the potential to increase the performance of crops and, and decrease the potential risk associated with making modifications. One can make modifications that already reside within the, the branch of life that is that crop and its ancestors and can allow you to be able to move only a desired sequence into uh, an agricultural crop. We, we are uh, wholly focused on therapeutics inside of Tessera, but back at the level of flagship, we're uh, actively tinkering and, and, uh, and working on exactly the realm of applications you describe, which is how might this be important for our food system over the coming decades? And, and what other manufacturing processes have the potential to benefit from, from this kind of technology? You know, it's probably easy to take a step all the way back from biotechnology as we know it and envision that the ability to engineer genomes is probably going to be a, a defining technology of this century. And the things that we've invented while a part of that are, um, we think applicable to those other domains too. Jeff Van Malton, co-founder and CEO of Tessera Therapeutics. Jeff, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it and it really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.